Today, uh, originally we were going to do part three of our series on widows. Uh, this series began a year and a half ago when I preached a sermon on Luke 7. Last week, we picked it up where we had left off in Acts 9. And I was thinking about just, just finishing it right out, but instead I thought, how much more fun would it be to have a congregational inside joke where you guys say, I'd say, hey, you ready for part three of the sermon? And say, oh, it hasn't been 18 months yet. So that's going to be it. So instead, instead of part three of our, of our series on widows, we're going to do like a part 2.5. So it, it, it relates especially to some of the stuff we talked about last week, especially right near the end of the sermon. But it's not, it's not yet, we're not ready to finish uh, that series. Um, last week, you'll remember at the end of the sermon, I said, boy, family sure is irritating. And I think everyone here knows that that's the case. Uh, nothing is more irritating than your family. And I use the illustration of uh, Jeff and Scott. Uh, Scott, who led uh, worship today, uh, his brother Jeff, they grew up next door to me. And I'm an only child, so I never experienced the wonderful joy of having a sibling. But I watched it. I watched those guys fight all the time. There was always something going on over there. God bless you, uh, Glenn and Kathy. I don't know how you made it with all of the, the rip-roaring, fighting, wrestling, all of that going on at each other's throats. And I, as, as I was growing up, I was thinking, man, I am certainly glad that I don't have siblings. I'm also glad that most of my relatives live very far away. It's, it's very nice to just, you know, just me and the parents showering gifts. But as I grew older, um, and I saw the way that Jeff and Scott's relationship changed over the years, uh, and, and began to know more and more people who developed close relationships with siblings, I began to realize that, you know, there's something to be said for family. There's something to be said for the relationships that develop between Siblings between parents and children, aunts and uncles, grandparents and grandchildren. And one of the things we left off with last week was the fact that the church, uh, we were talking about Tabitha, or in Greek Dorcas, how Tabitha, uh, by welcoming widows into her home, was signaling that these people who were far removed from her station in life, she was at the top of the social heap in a relatively cosmopolitan city, and yet she welcomed into her home and therefore, and therefore signified that these people were family, even though they had almost nothing in common from a socioeconomic or class perspective. And in this we see how the church takes up the ministry of Christ who welcomed the widows and begins to change the relationships between people who are not related by blood into people who are related by spirit, who are family. And so we talked a little bit about the fact that this church is a family. We pride ourselves on being a family. In fact, if you look in your, um, your bulletins, I think it even says, Coast is a family church. If you go on our website, the first thing you see, Coast is a family church. We pride ourselves on being a family of people. But that doesn't change the fact that family is irritating. I can't even tell you how many times my father and I have clashed over the years. I mean, part of it is that he's just a really bad dad. <laughs> so it's not entirely my fault. Uh, 
But even, even, when, even when you're being wonderful, still, we, 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 just, we clash on, on each other. So I, I'd like to be, you to be thinking about that. Think, it, think about, for right now, uh, just in the back of your minds, what it's like to be in family. How hard is family? I'd like you to just to let that settle in the back of your minds. How hard family can be as we approach the text this week. Um, if the, has the ushers passed out the, the notes? Excellent, awesome. Uh, you can follow, you can use your pew Bible if you'd like. I have it written out here. There's a couple places where I've um, made alterations to the New King James text based on just issues of translation and clarity. But if you would be so kind as to stand, let's read this text together. This is Colossians 3, 9 to 17. Paul begins, Do not lie to one another, since you've put off the old man, self, person, with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ all in all. Therefore, as the chosen ones of God, holy and beloved, put on, dress yourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience, enduring patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, dress yourself in love, which is the bond of completion. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the message of the gospel dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, whether it's word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Please be seated. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you might say, again? We, we just did this text six months ago. In fact, we did this text three years ago. Aren't there any other texts in the Bible? I'm sorry, it's, it's, uh, I really like it. And it, uh, it's not my fault. Aaron and I were at a wedding a couple weeks ago, and the couple chose this section, particularly uh, verses 12 uh, through 16, as the text of their wedding. And the, the pastor um, spoke a little bit on this text, and it, it really settled in me. I was, I was thinking, I was thinking, I've heard a lot of texts, a lot of different texts at weddings. Uh, perhaps my all-time favorite was when our former guitarist, Dan Neal, was married in a Roman Catholic ceremony. And the Roman Catholics, in their, their scriptures, they include the, uh, the Apocrypha. And one of the books in the Apocrypha is The Wisdom of Ben Sirach. And The Wisdom of Ben Sirach, in chapter 40, has what is generally considered to be the most sexist uh, chapter in all of ancient Jewish literature. And they actually took this chapter where it's, it's like, I mean, it's, go, go check it out on your own. It's, it's pretty horrible. But they actually read it at the wedding. And everyone in the, in the, in the congregation was like, Ugh. oh. And the best part about it was that uh, Missy, Dan's wife, was the one who demanded 
that it be put in the, in the and then we're talking like, we're talking lines, Ben Sirach, who was a, he was a Jew living in Alexandria, uh, Egypt, and he wrote this, this text, and he, he writes things like, women are deceitful beyond all measure. You know, women are, the, it, it reads, honestly, um, it's really horrible. And after that, after that, that, uh, that wedding, I thought, boy, I'm glad that's not in my Bible. <laughs> So many, many various texts that get read at weddings. Of course, the classic, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Um, I think maybe we had that at ours, Aaron. I can't remember. The whole day's a blur. Don't really remember anything about that day. It was a good day, though. I'm really glad we did it. Um, but so th- this, uh, this was a very interesting text to me to be read because this is not about couples at all. This is about the church. And it was interesting to hear these two people, my good friend John uh, and his wife, or fiance, now wife Cassandra, had put this at the center of their wedding service. These, these uh, commands, these ethical commands. And so it got me thinking about it. Now, you're bored of listening to Colossians 3, 9 through 17. I'm really, really sorry. And if you are curious about a different way of looking at this text, please, Neil had an excellent sermon about six, six months ago in which he deals with the difficulty of living the Christian life and how it is that it's not by effort that we accomplish what God asks of us. It's instead by the Spirit. Um, He has a wonderful sermon on what Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, called the passive righteousness of God, wherein simply by attending to who God is and what he's done, our our lives, our character changes. That's not going to be our focus today, but that is uh, a critical part of this text, and I encourage all of you to go back and listen to that. It's on our website. Um, as, an, as a small aside, uh, one of the things that that means is that the Spirit of God uh, creates inexhaustible truth in the text. Um, there is not just one sermon that can be preached on any one text. There are many, many sermons. The, the truth of God is rich, it's deep, it's like a fertile soil. And the more we return and return to texts, the more they speak to us. And so I hope that this will be a fresh look at this text and will not in any way change or invalidate what has gone before. So please, uh, check that out and, and just be aware, really the wonder of the majesty of God, that the Spirit can speak to us in so many different ways through the same words. Now, I've uh, bolded a few things in the, in the text on your note sheet. You notice the first thing that's bolded is uh, old man. That's because if I were to give a sense of what old man is, I would say instead of man, let's think of it in terms of DNA. That's a little bit easier for us in 2013. DNA. We all understand genes. We've, we've heard uh, in science class and biology about how our DNA, how our, our, our blood, what's, what the, the coding in our blood, the deribonucleic acid, how that uh, almost in, in a sense creates the individual who we are, right? And, and we know, based on our idea of what DNA does, that DNA dramatically impacts who we are as people, our behavior, our uh, proclivities, the things that we're likely to do, likely to think, likely to say, all of it very much impacted uh, from the way that God has constructed us in our DNA. I want us to look at that and say the old man is like the old DNA. And if you're wondering what that might be like, you might, uh, many of you I'm sure have, have seen the phenomenal film Wreck-It Ralph. Anybody? I've seen it. Katie's seen it. Great. If you have kids, you've probably seen it. I've seen it 78 times. Yeah, I know. 78 times. 
we, we, we purchased it on Vudu, and Alice, because I can't be bothered to parent her, has to be parented. I'm just kidding, I really do. But we do often have a movie on in the background. And so every day, over and over and over, Wreck-It Ralph would play. Would play. So what I, we've done this with several films. This time I decided to start counting because I was just curious to see how often you know, I'm actually watching these movies. I, I got to 78 and then I gave up. So I've actually seen it more than 78 times. I'm really, really familiar with this film. It is an excellent... It, it, really, it was around, I would say, probably the 35th or 36th time that I'd seen it that I really began to get it. The first, yeah, the first 25, 30 times, it just goes right over your head. But right there in the, in the midst of, of it, I, I began to see what was really going on in this film. And what, the, the film, if you haven't seen it or haven't seen a preview, it's basically there's a bunch of characters inside of a video game, right? And the video game's like Donkey Kong, if you've seen Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong is the, the old 80s classic where um, there's a big monkey who's like sending barrels down and there's a little guy who has to jump over the barrels in order to get to the top, right? And in the movie, this, the main character of the movie, Wreck-It Ralph, is sort of like Donkey Kong. He's a bad guy. And all of his life, he's seen that over and over he does the same thing. He, he gets to the top of the building, he throws these barrels down, he's trying to beat up the, this poor innocent person and over time he's like, he starts to think he's like, Man, I don't want to do this anymore. This just seems like a really terrible thing to do. Why would anyone be trying to... He is actually smashing, throwing bricks down on the little Fix-It Felix character. He's like, why am I doing this? I wish, I wish I could just wake up and instead of being a bad guy, I wish I could just wake up and be a good guy. Because man, then it's like, I'm, then instead of doing all this mean stuff, instead of doing, I'm doing positive things, I'm helping people, fixing things. And, and when you do positive things and help people, they're grateful, they give you pie, they give you medals. That seems a lot better than them throwing me off the building, watching me fall into the mud and laughing at me. He's like, why can't I change? I'm tired of being a bad guy. And for those of us familiar with computers, we think, oh, it's in your DNA. You're programmed. You don't have a choice. It's all there. You're, you're, that's who you are at the very core of yourself. You cannot be anything other than wreck it, Ralph. You cannot do anything other than beat up on the little guy, however much you might want to change. That's the old DNA. The interesting thing about the film is that over the course of the film, uh, a number of characters in, the, in the, the movie all find a way to overcome their programming, right? They're programmed to be a certain way, and yet through practices, through uh, activities, they find a way to become different people. You start out as a bad guy, you end out as a good guy. You start out as a good guy, you become a better guy. There's a way to change. And that, of course, is what Paul's talking about right here. You've got your old DNA, your old programming, your old self, your old man, your old person with his deeds. But that's done now. Now you've put on the new man who is, and I would say instead of is renewed in knowledge, is constantly over and over being renewed every day in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You've got new DNA. Maybe you don't know it, but it's true. In your, your blood's different than it was before you came to the Lord, before the Holy Spirit indwelt you. Some people ask um, 
what my dissertation is on. And in a sense, it's really just dealing with what it means to be born again. And one of the big things that I come to over and over and over is in the parlance, in the, in the, in the speech of 2013, your DNA has changed. Something has changed in the universe. Your blood is not the blood that you were born with. You've got new blood. You've been born a second time. And what that means is that you've got new parents. Your old parents are gone. Your new parent is the father. God is now your parent because you've changed who you are. And as a result of that change, every time when he says renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, it's almost like every time you reflect on who Christ is, what Christ did, and who you will be, it changes your mind. It, it changes your DNA a little bit more, and you become a little bit different, more and more according to the image of the one who created you. So you have two things, your old DNA. Your old DNA, you were a slave to, in Paul's thinking, a tribe or a culture. We're going to see what this looks like in a second. Your old, your old DNA made you a part of a community, a, a history that was different than where you are now. Your new DNA makes you a part of a different tribe, a different culture, and that's the church. Your old tribe, old culture, that's gone, that's done. Now you have a new tribe, a new culture, a new DNA, a new family, a new parentage. You're completely different. A couple of notes on the text. You'll notice uh, in verse 10, uh, the word man is italicized. This is just, uh, as you're reading, especially uh, the New King James, most modern versions will do this. Occasionally, the Greek is very strange, or it's not very comfortable in English. So what the translators do is they'll just insert words that will help you kind of keep the, the train of thought. Okay? So in the Greek, there is no uh, anthropos after new. Really, in the Greek, it just says, and the newness, and the new, right? And then after that, it says, and the new, the newly uh, renewed in knowledge all the time, according to... It just kind of goes on this long train, all right? And the reason that's important, just uh, from a grammatical perspective, is that Paul is using... um, He's using what's called an adjectival phrase. He's piling on more and more information to one thing, okay? So he says new. He wants to tell you what does new mean, all right? New means over and over being renewed in the knowledge of Christ. What kind of knowledge? The knowledge that is according to the image of him who created him. We might think of the image of God from Genesis. And then this is where it gets critical. In this newness... In this knowledge, which has been done according to the image of the one who created him, there is something very interesting about this newness. This newness is different than any kind of newness that's ever come before in the history of the world, in the history of the cosmos. There has never been a newness like this. This newness breaks down every barrier that could ever have been constructed, ever has been constructed. Hear what this newness is. It is, there's no Greek, no Jew, No circumcised, no uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free. Christ all in all. Each one of those things is an unbreakable barrier. Greek and Jew. The Jews are the the chosen people. 
They're the ones separated out, completely unrelated to the rest of the world. This barrier is so strong that men and women have lived and died. They have given up their sacred fortunes in order to protect this barrier. There have been revolutions fought to defend this barrier and the right to erect this barrier, Greek and Jew. It's gone. Circumcised, uncircumcised. We might read religious, not religious. This is how... um, uh, some of the non-religious people in Aaron's family think of us. Oh, Tom and Aaron, they're religious. Meaning that they're devout. They show up on Sunday, sort of. Right? They, they care. Religion matters to them. In a way, in the first century, circumcised, uncircumcised is the difference between those to whom religion matters and those to whom it doesn't. The world divided that way no longer. Barbarian. Those are the people who have really bad manners. I've been called a barbarian. (laughs) Barbarians, those who don't speak the language, they're off far away. They don't understand the proper way to sit down at the table. And if you're wondering, you start from the outside in with your, with your, I took a class on this in college. Yes, uh, college, wow, what do they teach in kids these days? For me, they taught me how to sit down at a, at a proper dinner and get through it without embarrassing myself. I went to college in the South where uh, uh, manners still matter, right? I'm from Southern California. When I got there, I would just, you know, grab hunks of meat and throw it into my face. And and there was this lady, Ruth, who literally actually sat me down once and said, Tom, it's horrible to watch you eat. I said, oh, okay, thank you. She's like, but but there's there's hope. I want you to come to this this dinner and we're going to go through that. So thank you, Ruth. I was a barbarian. I didn't know the right way to interact with people. I didn't know what life was supposed to look like. I didn't speak the language. I didn't fit into the culture. Thank goodness somebody civilized me. Scythian. So the first century uh, in the person in the ancient Near East, Scythian meant something like murderous savage. These were people who were, ah, much like Vikings. When we say Vikings... Very similar. It was assumed that a Scythian was the kind of person you tore in from the north, sacking, pillaging, taking off your women and children and your loot. I mean, really the lowest of the low. People who, under no circumstances, could you ever spend time with them because they're little better than animals. In fact, in some uh, texts from the first, uh, around the first century, ancient Near East, they're, they're even thought of as animals. They're, they're not even human no more. Slave and free. The interesting thing about slave and free is that both of them mean poor. Because if you're a free man, that doesn't make you a citizen. It just means that you don't have to obey the orders of a master. That's, you're still poor. You're still a day laborer. You're still at the bottom of the, of the, the, the social, uh, social ladder. You're a little bit better than a slave. But even that distinction, gone. And look at this. Notice the, the is in italics in, in verse 11. Christ all in all. That is isn't there. It's, it just makes it sound better in English. Christ all in all. As you're reading through the letters of Paul, you're going to find this over and over again where English, in English, we have to add these verbs. Paul doesn't need the verbs because the idea is so present. Christ all in all. Wherever there is Christ, new creation. That's in uh, 2 Corinthians, I think. 
There's, it, in our version, it says, wherever uh, there is Christ, there is new creation. There is is added. No, in the Greek, wherever there is Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. The old dividing lines are gone. This is what the new is. The new is the newest new that's ever been nude. The savage killers, the impolite ones who don't know how to speak the language, the religious, the non-religious, the chosen of God, the outside the covenant people, the slaves, the free, everyone, Christ, all in all. What a disaster. Think about it. What a disaster. Put those people in the same room. Have you guys ever been to a bad party? You know the kind I'm talking about. I mean, there's a number of different ways that a party can go bad, but uh, first, the really awkward one is when no one talks to each other. I hate this. It's like, I, I start feeling this really social anxiety, like I need to fix the problem. Like, I need to start a conversation with everyone, start getting people to talk to each other. Because it's like everyone's on, there's, there's the room, and everyone's around the wall, and there's this big open space in the middle. It's like, okay. That's that's one, or 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 the one where uh, somebody comes in and they maybe come from a different uh, uh, culture or something like that, and so they don't know all the rules and they're making all these terrible mistakes, and everyone's sort of snickering at them behind their back and they're they're gossiping with their friends about this 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 crude oaf in the midst of the room. I played this role when I was in Japan. They called me a large bear. And at the time, I was like 50 pounds lighter. So you can imagine how small they are. Uh, yeah, because, you know, I'm walking through. I don't know the rules, so I'm just doing things. And they're like, oh, what a fool. What a, what a gaijin bear. He doesn't know what he's doing. And they, they would gossip around me. Thankfully, I had no idea until much later. And I was like, it's like oh, oh, that would have been really awkward if I'd known. That's one way it can go bad. Or the worst... The absolute worst is when there's two people who are at loggerheads. And they just, they just corrupt the whole gathering because this person thinks this thing, this person thinks that thing, and bam, they come right together and they explode. Yikes. God, what an awful idea. God, don't you see? Don't you see, God? We had it all worked out. We we'd fixed everything. See, you created us, and then we realized that we were different, and so we fixed the problem by not, not spending time with people who are different than we are. We fixed it. So now there's no, we don't have this friction all the time. And now you send Christ, and you're telling us that that's over with? What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with that? Perhaps you think about the history of this country. I mean, let's think about it. Seriously, in the history of the world, there had never been a political entity that tried to do something like this. This is a true fact. Think about this. Think about, for the first time in history, didn't matter where you came from, didn't matter what socioeconomic class you were a part of, didn't matter, none of those things mattered. You could come and be a part of uh, well, at the time, I mean, we definitely had to do women's suffrage. 
We had the whole issue of slavery. There were problems. Uh, but the idea behind it, the idea of America was what? That anybody could come and be a part of this place. And somehow we would work it out. And this, uh, this is what? It's called the melting pot, right? You know, the Irish come, the Irish Catholics come, and the Italian Catholics come, and the British uh, Puritans are there, or English Puritans, uh, the Dutch Reforms are there, and everyone's here together, and we sort of duke it out, and we figure out how to get along. And let's think about it. I mean, really, honestly, what happened? Well, it wasn't all, it wasn't fun and games, that's for sure. I mean, think about think, words like ghetto, right? Words like uh, sectarian politics, uh, words like gangs. These things were developed because when you throw a whole bunch of people together who come from different tribes, different cultures, it doesn't work. It's hard. And so people naturally gather together to their own, uh, their own kind, to call it, to, to use a kind of a loaded term, but that's the only way that we know as human beings to deal with the diversity, the difference. And I would say that from a political and a cultural perspective, I believe this country has done the best that can be done in terms of bringing everyone together and sorting it out. It's really, in, in some ways, it's a miracle, and I attribute it uh, to the presence of the Christian faith and the movement of the Holy Spirit in this country throughout, it, throughout, its, uh, throughout its history. Um, to be able to do that. So where are we? Paul starts out. He says, look, you had old DNA. Your old DNA attached you to this tribe, to this culture. But guess what? Now, because of Christ, because of your faith in him, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now you're, you've got new DNA, new programming. You're part of a new tribe, a new culture. You're the child of God. No longer the child of whomever. And in this, you are brought into a family of radical diversity. Your new family, your new brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles, they're crazy. Look out! Because they used to be things like Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Now Christ all in all. And then Paul stops. He just says, that's it. Good luck, guys. Have fun. All right. Thanks. No. Paul doesn't stop. Okay, so now that we've gone for, what, 25, 30 minutes, we can start the sermon. All right, we can get to the actual text, 12 through 17. Any of, us, any of you who know um, Aaron and I, you know that we are extremely different people. Um, Aaron is very good looking, and I am not attractive. Aaron likes to work out and to run and to be healthy. I do not. Uh, I'm interested in the stuff of nerds. I like science fiction. Aaron does not. I don't want to get dirty. Aaron likes to plant. You can just see, you go down the list, it's really hard to find uh, anything we have in common until, until you step back. Right? Step back for a second. Okay, just individual personalities. Sure, my music taste, way better than hers. But let's still step back for a second and let's, let's move back for a second. All right. If you look at it from a, from a cultural perspective, from a stand-back perspective, we, we share um, broadly um, our, our cultural heritage, you know, white European-ish, 
we come from middle to upper middle class families. We um, are both uh, Protestant Christians, right? We, uh, let's see, what else? Well, we're not both, yeah, okay, that's not, um, well, just, I'm just saying, from a, from a broad perspective, you look at us. Oh, both college educated, right? Um, so we, we, we share all of these sort of macro elements. In fact, from a, from, if, if you didn't know us personality-wise, you'd look at us and be like, pretty much exactly the same. You know, just a perfect fit. It's only when you get to the, to the nuts and bolts that you see where we could have major conflict, right? Aaron likes to be organized. I'm a terrible slob. Honestly, when Neil left, he, uh, the, office, the desk in the office was immaculate. I request nobody go in there for another month and a half because it's horrible. Aaron's wondering where all of our coffee mugs are. <laughs> so what makes a relationship work? when people are so different. And let's just imagine that instead of Aaron and I just being kind of different on the nuts and bolts, just imagine that we came from a different culture, right? Just imagine that we came from different socioeconomic classes, a different set of values, a different set. Imagine all of those things being mixed up and then imagine what our marriage would look like. Really exciting, I guarantee you that. Aaron's passionate. She lets me know when I messed up. It would be crazy, it would be very, very difficult. What could possibly make something that radical work? Therefore, as the chosen ones of God, holy and beloved, dress yourselves in these things. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also do. And above all of that, put on love, which is the bond of completion. And then, guess what? You'll let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And then, when you've done all that, be thankful. Growing up, memorizing this, this, uh, this text, even just coming at it maybe from like a secular point of view, you read these things, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like kind of a milksop, pushover, kind of sucker ethic, right? The guy, the guy who lives like that, oh, yeah, you be compassionate, kind, you have your humility, your meekness, long-suffering, I'm going to walk all over you, Right? I mean, really, imagine somebody trying to actually live this way. Well, that's because this isn't just, this isn't just outside of a context. This just isn't just random ethical uh, commands. This is how this community is able to work. That's how we're able to be a family. When you get people from over here and over there, and you get them from up there and down there, and you all crash into each other, for the first time, the only way you're going to make it is to have compassion for each other. It's to be kind. It's to be humble. 
Don't think you've got it figured out because you, you probably don't. You have to be meek. You have to be willing to let things slide. You've got to be long-suffering. I love the New King James long-suffering. Most modern translations say patient. Patient doesn't get it. Patience is, okay, everybody, I'm ready to go. Um, you've been up there for an hour and a half. We're going to be late if you're not down in three minutes ago. So that's patience. Long-suffering, that's when somebody really gets you. They really bother you. And you don't give up on them. You let it go. When you have to put up with that murderous, savage Scythian who somehow found his or her way into, into this place, you have to be long-suffering. You have to be compassionate to that murderous, savage Scythian's past culture or tribe. You have to understand where he or she came from. And then you've got to be like, okay, all right, I... No wonder you do not know how to eat with a fork and knife. All right. Uh, over time, perhaps we can change some of that. Bearing with one another. Yeah. How else are we going to put up with someone as loud and as obnoxious as me? You just got, well, you got to put up with me. And then, of course, one of Jesus' number one commands, forgive, 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 forgive. If you've ever lived in a foreign culture and you had a miserable experience, it's because the host culture did not do these things. They didn't see where you came from. They didn't care. They just wanted you to conform, to figure it out, to get it done. If, however, like me, you've lived in a foreign culture where it was a wonderful experience, it's because the people who welcomed you in were compassionate to you. They were kind to you. They were humble. They were willing to learn. They wanted to know about what you thought or what you believed they were willing to get walked on a little bit. They were meek. And they put up with you. Every time you made a mistake, they said, ah, it's not really his fault. Or maybe, well, no, it is his fault, but that's life. That's one thing. On your uh, outlines, it says, life at CBC in 2013. Number one, practice the virtues. Uh, this, I call it the virtues because this is a list. It's very common in ancient Near Eastern uh, ethical discourse to list out a number of virtues. And by virtue, we mean something that you practice over and over and over. You keep doing it because it doesn't come natural. And only by doing it over and over and over will it become a part of your character. This is, uh, if you are familiar with Aristotle, the Nicomachean Ethics, he, he, he says you can, you can start out where you are, you be, can become something else by practicing virtues. In the same way we talked about Wreck-It Ralph earlier, Ralph starts out as a bad guy, but by practicing good guy virtues, he changes his DNA, overcomes his programming, and becomes a good guy. 
right? The same, same sort of uh, mentality is here with Paul. He's saying, if you think over and over and over about the message of the gospel, who you are in Christ, and you practice these Christ-like characteristics over time, you will become more like this. It will get easier. I once had a uh, teacher who, who said once, he said, you know, the first day on the job as a cop, you don't feel like a cop. You have the uniform. You put on the uniform. And that makes you a cop. But it doesn't, feel, it doesn't fit right. You're not used to it. You're not used to the authority that comes with the uniform. You've put on this outfit, but it doesn't feel right yet. Over time, wearing that day in, day out, practicing the work of a policeman, over time, it becomes natural. You, you just are a cop. And of course, you could multiply this with servicemen, nurse, anything. Where there, wherever there's a uniform, it starts out, it feels weird. For example, this suit. Not normally a suit wearer. This is the third week in a row. It's getting easier. Pretty soon, Pat, it's going to be like nothing. Every day, I'll be in this thing. That's number one, practice the virtues. Number two, constantly be reminded of the gospel. Um, check uh, verse 16. Let the, and I have in, in brackets here, message of the gospel dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The, uh, the, the actual words are word of Christ. Uh, in this context, uh, whenever Paul says Christ, he's, he's thinking of Christ as sort of the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. And the word, the message about this Messiah, let that dwell in you. Be reminded of the fact of who you were, saved from sin, raised with Christ. That's who you are. The gospel, God himself has come in flesh, lived with us, suffered for us, died and rose victorious over death and sin. Remind yourself of that. The more you think about that, the more you're going to live like somebody who believes it. Number three, rethink everything in terms of a unified Christian vision. This is an interesting section, um, and it's close to unique in Paul's literature. Verse 16, where he says, um, Let the message of the gospel dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think that maybe what Paul's getting at here is the the unity that comes about when people sing and pray together, when we practice these things, when we confess the same lyrics over and over together, when we sing with one another, we build up a sense of unity amongst ourselves in this body. We realize that we're the kinds of people who have the same vision of what the world is like. This is not the world that just randomly happened from some big explosion and we're all just sort of ticking off the clock until, what, the sun goes supernova and vaporizes everything. That's not the world. The world is God's story. The world is God's story of fall, of redemption, and of ultimate glory. 
And when we sing that, when we confess that, when we pray that together over and over and over, we become one body, one people. Don't stop singing. Don't stop praying. Don't stop telling each other the truth about what the world looks like. You do that over and over and over, over a long period of time, and that cop uniform's going to fit great. It's going to become natural. That's who you will be. There are other ways to, to read this, um, which we're not going to go into, but I think, especially reading, um, as we're reading from an ethical perspective, there is a, a, um, a sense of bodiliness, of corporate unity that comes when we do these things together. I think, um, especially in American history, of, do you remember the first time you heard the national anthem played uh, after a great either victory or great tragedy in American history? Um, of course, for me, the, uh, and, and for everyone around my age, the defining moment of our generation, nationally and politically, was 9-11. And after that happened, the first time you heard the national anthem, something trembled inside. And you looked around and you said, we're not that different. We've all been wounded this way. That song created a sense of community. I remember Glenn, when um, I was leading worship here, he used to talk about how uh, when uh, at a church that he'd been at, well, Glenn, you're what? How old? You're 93, 94? So a church that he'd been at 60, 70 years ago, um, <laughs> every, uh, every time they gathered, they would begin worship with the same song. What was the song, Glenn? It was a long time, I know. Yeah, well, there, it, was, it was 60, 70 years ago. Uh, but they, they would begin singing the same song uh, as a small community. And that song became their anthem. It's, it sowed not only within them a sense of what they believed to be true, but it sowed a sense of unity and family into them. We need to wrap it up. These three things. These are not just pie-in-the-sky ethical ideas. These are three ways that Paul, under the influence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has determined is the only way to get this community of people to be a family. For us to function as a family, to think of each other as a family, to react to each other as a family, because family is irritating. And the only way to overcome that is to clothe ourselves in these virtues to think in these ways, to sing these songs. When we do that, we come together closer, more really than our blood family comes together. That is a phenomenal and unprecedented idea in the history of the world. No one ever thought that until God in Christ saved us. Whether you're Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. No, Christ, all in all. All in all. And yeah, that's going to be hard. If you're Tabitha and you got these widows who don't know how to make a buck, 
You've got to embrace them. You've got to be compassionate from where they come from. You have to have humility to learn from them. Meekness to put up when they step on your toes. You've got to be long-suffering with the endless problems they seem, seem to bring to you. You've got to bear with them. You've got to forgive them. And then, on top of all that, you learn to love them. And when you've done that, you're complete. That's that word there. Um, it's in brackets. In New King James, you get perfection. But I think co- completion is when you're a complete person, a complete Christian. So friends, brothers and sisters, I know that there is somebody in this church who bothers you. It's probably me. Here's how you know. You wake up one morning and you realize, oh dear Lord Jesus, I love him. All that time, it was like nails on a chalkboard. And he still bothers me. But oh dear Lord Jesus, I love him. When you can say that to me, you're complete. And we're brothers and sisters. Our DNA is the same. We've overcome our programming. We're Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the family that you give us in this church, warts and all. We thank you, God, for the people that drive us nuts. We thank you for the people who are as different from us as can be. We thank you, God, that you, as part of our discipleship, you teach us to be family together, to negotiate our problems to forgive, to be compassionate, to be humble, to be meek, to be patient, long-suffering. And above all, God, to love as you loved us. Fill us, Father, with your Spirit, that the love of your Spirit will unite us as brothers and sisters in ways we've never known. God, make us complete. Help us to realize this new DNA, this new programming you've given us in your spirit. Let us be those people. And God, every time we stumble and fall, I pray that you will surround us with brothers and sisters who forgive. Who forgive and forgive and forgive and pick us back up and say, keep going. You who have been so good to us, giving your son. We commit now, God. We commit now to giving you our allegiance again. To practicing these things again. To loving you and loving your people, your, your chosen ones, your holy elect again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.